everybody welcome back to we and you where we talk about the kentucky commission on human rights and a little bit about what's going on in our area i am terrence sullivan and i'm Brittany cook we're broadcasting from beautiful downtown louisville here in the historic hayburn building Today is a fun uh, episode. We have Commissioner Rick Worth, um, who is one of our newer commissioners at the Kentucky Commission on Human Rights. So enjoy today's conversation with Commissioner Rick Worth. Hey, Commissioner Worth. Thank you for stopping in. Um, I, especially on short notice um, for people who don't know, which is everyone besides us, I kind of just sprung this on them the last minute. Um, so if you wanted, though, could you introduce yourself and kind of it, really your name and your title? Sure, Terrence. It's a pleasure to be with you. I'm grateful for the opportunity. So my name is Rick Worth, and I am the Chief Executive Officer at Children's Home of Northern Kentucky, CHNK Behavioral Health. And we have been operating in Northern Kentucky since 1882. Uh, focusing on assisting the most vulnerable families and youth who are in need of uh, behavioral health care and residential services. So people who, as I started, I said Commissioner Worth, um, I, I just wanted to say um, he is an, one of our newest commissioners who was appointed, um, was it three months ago now? That's correct and it's been a very welcome and refreshing addition to the Commission on Human Rights. It's been nice to, um, and I just wanted to say this on here, it's been really nice to have someone come in and really want to immediately start doing things to help us move forward with great ideas and offers to help and assist us in what we need, but also just bringing your perspective and really your expertise to the table. Um, how long have you been at Children's Home? Yeah, Terrence, I had the uh, great fortune of becoming a team member at Children's Home of Northern Kentucky in uh, October of 2010. Uh, I started off as the uh, development director and then uh, went on to become uh, vice president for development. And then uh, in 2012, the Board of Trustees asked me if I would step into the role of Chief Executive Officer. And it has been an incredible opportunity for me. And it's uh, been an opportunity that's also uh, challenged my worldview. It's expanded my horizons. And I, I think I have a different take on, um, on how differently human beings can begin this journey we call life. So, and I'm going to get back to that because that's an interesting um, thing to say, the different ways that we can go into this thing we call life. Um, and I think the next question might go into why you have a, a very unique uh, 
an informed perspective. Um, what did you do before some of your work at Children's Home of Northern Kentucky? Yeah, so uh, I've had a, a somewhat interesting uh, career trajectory. I, uh, in, when I left high school at the age of 18, I entered Catholic seminary and uh, I came from a very uh, religious family. Three of my aunts uh, were Sisters of Mercy who were based in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, that same uh, religious order taught me in uh, high school and grade school. So I came from a very uh, faith-oriented background. And at age 18, I decided that uh, the best way I could help people in life was as an ordained priest and went on to seminary and got my undergraduate degree at Thomas More University uh, here in Northern Kentucky, Thomas More College back then. Uh, went on to... Uh, to graduate school at uh, Mount St. Mary's University in uh, Cincinnati. I took a little bit of a break to teach high school for about five years, which was a really uh, rewarding experience. And uh, then headed back to Chicago to finish my graduate degree. I was ordained a Catholic priest in the Diocese of Covington, Kentucky in 1999. And then uh, uh, through a long period of discernment, uh, I decided uh, in 2010 to uh, move to a, a different chapter in life. And I had the, the, the support and encouragement of so many in the Catholic community. I had an understanding bishop who uh, understood that uh, life and circumstances and insights had changed for me. And I, uh, I was lucky enough uh, to uh, land a position uh, with the team at Children's Home of Northern Kentucky. So yeah, but I've dabbled in ordained ministry and high school teaching, and uh, now I'm working in uh, child welfare and behavioral health care. And serving as a commissioner on a human rights organization. Uh, and, and serving as a commissioner, which really, I have to say, it's been an absolute honor and uh, and a surprise uh, when the governor's office called and asked if I would be open uh, to serving as a commissioner on the Kentucky Human Rights Campaign. Uh, I was flabbergasted. I, I don't know how exactly uh, my name entered that poll for consideration, but I'm certainly grateful and uh, humbled that uh, I was asked to be a part of this. Uh, it's been incredible working with you and with the uh, uh, Chairman Burse and the other commissioners on this uh, very important body uh, in the Commonwealth of Kentucky. So, and it's also been great working with you. Um, for people who don't know really what Children's Home of Northern Kentucky does, could you explain a little bit about what your mission is and maybe where you have locations and really just telling us about your work. Okay, yeah, absolutely. I, I am a. Uh, I have really immersed myself in this community of healing that we call Children's Home of Northern Kentucky. Uh, we trace our roots back to 1882 in Northern Kentucky. We were founded uh, by Amos and Sarah Schinkel, who were uh, really uh, very important historic figures in the Commonwealth of Kentucky. They they were. Uh, played a very big role in the abolitionist movement. They were very dedicated to their particular faith community, the Methodist Church. And they, were, they also had a very uh, keen eye 
not only for business, but also for taking care of their brothers and sisters in the human community. So Amos Schinkel uh, made his fortune in riverboat transportation uh, until uh, he had the bright idea that maybe uh, riverboat transportation could be superseded by building a bridge. And uh, he was the financial force behind uh, the uh, building of the Roebling Suspension Bridge connecting Northern Kentucky and Cincinnati. Uh, so uh, we talk a lot at Children's Home about building bridges to better futures because bridge building is in our blood. Our founder is probably best known for that financial accomplishment, but he was also uh, uh, very big in uh, the protection uh, of human rights. He was very concerned uh, about uh, black faith communities in Northern Kentucky. He underwrote uh, several co black congregations the erecting churches and uh, he was just uh, very devoted uh, to the spiritual aspect of life uh, and not just uh, the business aspect of life. Sorry about that. My, uh, my cuckoo clock is reminding us what time it is here. I apologize about that. <laughs> but, Amos, uh, but Amos is also uh, very big uh, in terms of Kentucky history, in terms of the Civil War. At one point in a Civil War skirmish, Union uh, Army uh, personnel were stuck over on the Cincinnati side of the river, and uh, the Confederacy was moving farther and farther into northern Kentucky, so he lined up all of his river boats that he used for his business and created a bridge so that uh, the Union Army might be able to come over and uh, address the, uh, the uh, Confederate troops that were moving farther and farther into northern Kentucky and uh, threatening the Underground Railroad. So. Uh, we, we are quite entrenched uh, in Northern Kentucky history. Amos and 12 of his uh, business associates decided to begin an orphanage uh, in the 1800s, and it simply uh, provided for the welfare of poor families and for orphans in the classic sense of that word. Uh, and we're still doing a, a type of that work here 137 years later. Uh, during uh, that evolution uh, from orphanage, we started taking care of kids who did in fact have parents but were removed from their parents' uh, care because of uh, severe abuse or neglect. So in the 1980s, about 100 years after we were founded, we started taking care of kids who were in what we now call out-of-home care because of abuse and neglect. We still do that work today. Uh, we have two residential campuses uh, for uh, the care of youth minors who are in need of 24-7 care uh, because of the trauma of child abuse, child neglect, serious mental illness, uh, adverse childhood experiences that uh, often come part and parcel with child abuse and child neglect. Uh, a few years ago, uh, starting around 2015, 2016, we also launched uh, a wide array of outpatient treatment services so that we could work with kids and with families uh, who were uh, in danger of having a child removed because of um, a lack of functioning in the family. And so uh, today we have an entire continuum of care that ranges all the way from outpatient services to uh, high intensity residential services at our, at our three locations here in Northern Kentucky. We have an outpatient center in downtown Covington. 
uh, a residential campus in Duluth Park, and then another residential campus in Burlington, Kentucky. I will say I visited the main office. I'm assuming it's the main office in the park and that building and just the grounds and the, it's, it's, it was a very incredible building, not just because of how nice it was, but just the type of work that was going on to have the, the therapists there and to have the residential area, but to also have a school um, in the building, which I thought was a really great uh, piece of the puzzle. Yeah, I, right. I appreciate uh, the comments about uh, the real estate and facilities. You're, you're right. Uh, we are a unique children's home in the sense that our main campus sits adjacent to a private park, Davu Park, as you mentioned, uh, next to an 18-hole golf course and overlooks uh, the Ohio River with a sweeping panorama of downtown Cincinnati and all of the bridges. Uh, there are people who are actually not just surprised, but actually dismayed, wondering why does a children's home need that kind of property? And yet uh, our founder and his family were very insistent upon a, a basic concept. And the concept went something like this, that physical plant, real estate, facilities had to reflect the dignity of the work that was being undertaken for the most vulnerable. And I just find that a really beautiful approach to the work we do. Uh, we talk about that our banner cry, our, 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 our ultimate goal is to be a flagship of excellence in care. And even the, the property uh, has to convey that kind of message to the children and families who are coming into uh, our services. That's a, a really great way to look at it. I, I think not to go off topic, but I think that's a conversation that can be had around schools because just thinking about the, the effort that you put into the places where you're having people come, if it looks like a welcoming and nice space that like the real estate there is so nice and it's a real, it's beautiful actually. And it's a, it gives you this sense of caring when you come there. And I think anything that you do, if you show that there's some investment in you being there, I think that in a way does make the people in turn who are visiting or who are staying there, you can feel that because you can, you can feel when there's been a lack of investment in an area and then you expect people to feel appreciated or, or neat or wanted or cared for when some of the people involved um, in creating that space don't seem to put that same type of care in the input and expect a different output. Yeah, right on. I mean, we human beings are a people of the five senses. Uh, we never shut off our five senses. Uh, they are constantly feeding us data about our surroundings. So, you know, uh, we, we can't minimalize the impact that the, uh, when we talk about the treatment environment, of course, we're talking about the culture of the physicians and the nurses and the clinical therapists and case managers and the residential treatment specialists. Of course, we're talking about 
that type of culturally competent care, but we can't underestimate the impact that uh, the campus itself uh, has in terms of making someone feel safe, making someone feel secure, and making sure that it conveys uh, a message about the dignity of each human being who comes to our front doors. Uh, you mentioned schools. I, I have to say I'm a little bit of a, a history buff. And uh, David Schroeder, the executive director of the Kenton County Public Libraries, uh, has been a phenomenal asset to Children's Home of Northern Kentucky and our and our history going back to 1882. Our founder, Amos Schinkle, actually played a role in the establishment of schools in downtown Covington, Kentucky. And uh, he was really big. There are several uh, historic papers that record his insistence that school buildings uh, were really uh, something to be treasured by the entire community. He insisted, for example, that Rookwood Tile, for those of you who are familiar with uh, Rookwood Tile, and uh, it, it has a cult following uh, in Cincinnati, Northern Kentucky, and really uh, around the country. But Amos Schinkel uh, wanted to make sure that schools in Covington uh, were outfitted in, with uh, those kind of blings, those touches with uh, <laughs> style. Uh, at the Children's Home that you are mentioning at uh, our main campus in the 1920s, it was designed by Samuel Hannaford and Sons. It comes complete with uh, gas fireplaces throughout the building. Uh, there were gas sconces throughout the walls. Um, uh, custom wood paneling uh, throughout the building. Uh, Amos and Sarah and their family, when they erected our children's home, uh, wanted to make sure that uh, people saw it really uh, as a treasure, that the care of the vulnerable and the weak and the wounded and those who were experiencing hardships, uh, that kind of work had to be highlighted. And I, I think um, the, the physical plant piece plays a, a real pivotal role there. No, I, I think that it's it's definitely a welcoming space. And I can only imagine um, back in the day how it felt um, seeing what was the, the living rooms um, in the space and seeing how nice they were, just the, the feeling of home that they probably had in those spaces. Um, so I did want to talk for the most part of this about something you brought up today in our commission meeting. And it's just been, it really elevated after other things happened today. Um, but if you could, I wanted you to share some of the, the concerns that you raised about um, what was going on with the possible exemption or contract with um, Sunrise? Is it Sunrise Services? Uh, Sunrise Children's Services, yes. right, has been having uh, some dialogue, conversation, uh, discombobulation around uh, signing of a state contract uh, for private child caring, uh, which is the license title of providing residential services for uh, youth who are in state's custody who need 24-7 residential care, correct? So what is their, what is the holdup with their contract status? 
Right, so uh, the, um, as folks are probably aware of, as the story has been in, you know, in the newspapers from Lexington to Louisville to Northern Kentucky around the state, uh, the, the administration of this particular child welfare provider has had concerns uh, around signing uh, a state contract that had language uh, barring the discrimination uh, against uh, certain demographics. And specifically, um, uh, there is concern uh, uh, around uh, religious liberty uh, of a faith-based institution and managing that dynamic uh, when it comes to language prohibiting um, the discrimination of folks based upon sexual orientation, gender identity, gender expression. It, 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 I'm not dismissing the fact that those can be delicate topics to work around right. uh, in faith-based organizations. I, as you pointed out at the beginning of our conversation, I, I certainly have spent a, a major portion of my life uh, in the active practice of faith and in providing pastoral care uh, as an ordained person. Uh, so don't diminish uh, the role of faith in uh, any anyone's life and in the Commonwealth. The Commonwealth of Kentucky is one of the most uh, religiously affiliated states in the country uh, based upon per capita uh, church attendance on a regular basis. Uh, that's to be celebrated. Uh, I think the, the real concern at times, however, comes in when, uh, when the rubber hits the road around faith-based um, discussions vis-a-vis -vis in the face of uh, discrimination uh, and how to navigate the realities that uh, not everyone uh, navigates life the same way. Uh, not everyone fits the same mode. Um, one of the, uh, the pieces that I'm most concerned about is uh, the code of ethics that our social workers at Children's Home of Northern Kentucky and other providers around the nation and the state, almost all of our social workers, our therapists, are members of the American Counseling Association, the National Association of Social Workers. And those professional agencies, those professional um, entities, I should say, all have a code of ethics that really uh, put the client first, that in a, in a trauma-informed approach treatment, the client and the client's needs are what are paramount. And in those code of ethics, uh, there's explicit language around discrimination uh, based around sexual orientation, gender identity, gender expression. And our social workers, our clinical therapists, all make a commitment to those guiding principles, to those codes of ethics. And so the present discussion uh, related to can a religiously affiliated institution have a pass when it comes to uh, anti-discrimination language, it's, it's interesting. I, I do not uh, present myself as uh, an attorney, as an expert in legal matters. All I will say as someone who has worked in pastoral care and in child welfare, I, I do know certain facts. In fact, number one, there is a disproportionate number of LGBTQ youth who are in Kentucky's out-of-home care arena 
precisely because of sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression. Uh, LGBTQ youth often have much higher adverse childhood experiences scores. They are much more likely to experience school violence, school bullying, and because of that, uh, often turn toward uh, uh, items such as uh, substance use earlier than their peers, uh, sometimes to cope with the mental anguish of not that was being going to be my accepted. Question. <laughs> in their, yeah, in their faith communities, in their school communities. And so if we know that to be the fact, then the question is for a person like me who operates a child welfare institution, how do we approach that child, uh, that young person, that adolescent, in truly a tra trauma-informed uh, manner where we're not asking the question, what's wrong with this kid, but rather what happened to this kid? So a couple questions. Uh, you said it a couple times, and just for clarity, um, what does trauma-informed mean to you? You know, so... Uh, the whole trauma-informed movement in behavioral healthcare really, uh, I think, gets its uh, origin, be, has its birth in, in the post-Vietnam War era when we are seeing a huge number of troops coming back into the country after serving overseas and uh, having some really major issues reintegrating into what we would casually call normal life. There are uh, high levels of suicide, high levels of uh, divorce, um, relationships imploding, inability to maintain employment. And that led to those, those dynamics eventually led to some pretty exciting things in the mental health field. For example, the, the development of this whole notion of post-traumatic stress disorder. You don't hear a lot about that in the decades prior to the Vietnam War. It really does seem to start garnering the attention of the healthcare community uh, following the Vietnam War. Decades later, it, it took a while, but <laughs> researchers and those who were involved in behavioral health started to have this realization that children who were severely abused, who were severely neglected, uh, could demonstrate the same type of uh, mental health disorders and behavioral health issues that were affecting troops coming back from war, that trauma, uh, and that is anything which overwhelms a person's interior or exterior abilities to cope uh, and has negative uh, effects both in, ter in terms of mental health, physical health, spiritual health, psychological health, that those dynamics weren't simply limited to soldiers fighting in a war abroad, but uh, could easily be experienced in um, households where there was major violence and dysfunction and abuse. Thank you. Um, this is a statistical question and it's completely fine if you don't know the exact number. Um, I just know from experience that people do keep a, a tally of this, but do you know around how many kids were in out-of-home care just this past year? Yeah, those numbers fluctuate truly, Terrence, on a daily basis. But uh, in, in our recent history as a, as a commonwealth, 
we've had the number hovering around 10,000 children in out-of-home care in the Commonwealth of Kentucky. Today, uh, we uh, have approximately 9,000 in out-of-home care. Uh, so the number uh, it fluctuates. Uh, and yet there are some common denominators. There are some engines that are driving the numbers uh, of children who are coming into out-of-home care. Once again, children who have been removed um, under the auspices of the Commonwealth of Kentucky, the Cabinet for Health and Family Services because of severe abuse and neglect. And one of those common drivers is the epidemic of addiction, mm -hmm. uh, which certainly plays a major role. Addicted parents cannot parent. Uh, and uh, so many times, uh, the other dynamic that's at play are, are parents who themselves had multiple adverse childhood experiences in their lives. There's such a generational effect to neglect and to abuse. It often plays itself out generation after generation. So the, the work of Children's Home of Northern Kentucky is, is really a long haul game. It is not short wind strategies that will get us through this. If we are really serious about ending child abuse and child neglect in the Commonwealth of Kentucky, we, we cannot simply start with adverse childhood experiences we really have to start with adverse community environments. And I'm talking about dynamics such as poverty, homelessness, and I would even add homophobia, that list of adverse community environments that can, uh, that can then uh, increase the likelihood of adverse childhood experiences, which then feeds the mill of kids coming into out-of-home care. And so this whole dynamic uh, about what is happening in, in the current scenario with the discussion about who is allowed to provide care uh, with children uh, in state's custody, I, I think you know the, the, the answer has to be, it has to be those who want all hands on deck, who understand that the pivotal questions uh, around what happened to you can often include a, a real hard look at these systemic failures around poverty, homelessness, uh, violence, gun violence, and uh, homophobia. Those are just a few of the examples that we really have to take a serious look at if we're going to uh, address these problems upstream before they become a, a raging river that uh, drowned so many Kentuckians. So looking at the issue um, that we are currently facing, is the particular entity, um, are they the only religious or religiously affiliated agency? Are there others that are fine with adhering to the non-discrimination piece? Right. So uh, the, the current news cycle is focused. It's made national uh, news. Uh, it has been covered by Newsweek. It's been covered by the Associated Press, specifically uh, Sunrise Children's Services, not uh, desiring to sign uh, the state contract. Um, they are not the only religiously affiliated child welfare provider in the Commonwealth of Kentucky. There are multiple and they range from uh, uh, multiple types of denominations, including uh, Roman Catholic, Presbyterian, United Methodist, 
And uh, many of those organizations have not um, had a conundrum. They have not stumbled uh, related to signing contracts uh, with language that bars discrimination uh, toward the uh, towards those who have a sexual orientation, gender identity, gender expression, different from the heteronormative norm. So obviously, then, if it's if this is a big deal, is it because the other place um, are they the largest provider, or are they the bulk of the do they place the bulk of children? Is it, I'm just curious why it's such a well, they're a very significant player. I mean, uh, and they're very much needed. Uh, they're, they're, unfortunately, with the numbers that we have in Kentucky, uh, we, we are not the envy of the nation when it comes to the number of children who are in out-of-home care. And we really do need all hands on deck. Having said that, uh, we have to have a, an approach that is child-centric, that is focused on the client. And, uh, and that includes uh, children who are of no faith background or who are coming to us from a, a faith background that's uh, different from the majority white Anglo-Saxon Protestant contingent. Uh, and we have to also be cognizant uh, around the disproportionate number of children who are in state's custody, uh, children, uh, persons of color and uh, those who identify as part of the LGBTQ community. So uh, I think, you know, my big point that I've been making uh, to those who are interested in the discussion is I certainly am not anti-religion. I am certainly not uh, against uh, the, the major role that faith communities have played in lifting up uh, the poor, the vulnerable in our midst. However, I do think it's worthy uh, of our conversation to ask uh, why the emphasis uh, on this particular on the particular arena of LGBTQ. Um, why is that uh, the deal breaker of sorts? Uh, we once again, I think we need all hands on deck. And if there are couples and individuals who identify as uh, same-sex couples or identify as LGBTQ, are we really in a position as a commonwealth to say, no, thank you. We have the problem right. covered when we clearly do not. <laughs> so how many, and again, if you don't know the answer to this, uh, I'm just curious, this is my curiosity, about how many placement agencies or providers are there in Kentucky? That's a great question, Terrence. And I, I should have all of my documents here in front of me. Uh, you're, you're throwing me some, uh, some curveballs here, but uh, there are multiple uh, agencies. Uh, the uh, approximately half of the children who need residential care, who are in out-of-home care, there's a, a, a number of those kids who need kids who need 24/7 residential care. About half of them are in the care of private organizations, some of which are religious affiliated, religiously affiliated, and some are not. Uh, Children's Home of Northern Kentucky uh, started off as a religiously affiliated organization, but today, quite truthfully. Our clients uh, span the spectrum of uh, no faith, uh, no re uh, religious practice, all the all the way to those who are highly engaged in faith. Uh, and so, 
you know, once again, um, there is, uh, I think, the, the question around diversity, inclusion, equity, and access has to be uh, the name of the game. So I guess before we move, I mean, we're not going to move on, obviously, but um, what do you think is the best, from your opinion, the best course of action with this and I'm going to assume before you answer that it's because you said it a couple times that we just need right now all hands on deck and for people to we don't have we don't have the the luxury right now of turning people away who want to welcome people into their homes and so what do you think is a personal thoughts um, what do you think is the best way forward right now in this situation? Well, uh, I may sound like I'm reverting back to my uh, days of ordained ministry, but I think the answer to your question, Terrence, is we have to summon our better angels here. Uh, I, I don't know if there would be anyone who disagrees with the observation that we as a nation and as even as a state have been experienced some real divisiveness mm -hmm. over the last few years. Uh, and that divisiveness has um, had major effects um, in terms of who we are real willing to listen to, who are we willing to have conversations with. Uh, the, 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 the divide around uh, racial equity discussions, uh, around uh, the, uh, the whole movement of the LGBTQ uh, movement has really uh, caused an entrenchment of sorts in, in views. And it has been really a challenge to have truly fruitful dialogues. And, uh, and so I think, uh, what is the way forward? Uh, some in our better angels uh, ask some questions of each other uh, about uh, what is it that we are really after? If we answer the question, what are we really after? If we answer that, we are about a commonwealth that is safe and secure, that it is inclusive and inviting. If we are about the business uh, of ending child abuse and child neglect, and if we are serious about taking ourselves off of the consistent top 10 list of things like uh, child fatalities and near fatalities related to child abuse and child neglect, taking ourselves off of the list of the number of youth uh, in out-of-home care per capita, which Kentucky is one of the higher uh, states in the nation on that, then how do we learn to work at addressing the systemic issues uh, that are bringing kids into that type of environment? Once again, I think we have a role to play with adverse community environments to address uh, collectively things like racism, poverty, lack of education, uh, and, and those addressing those dynamics can have nothing but positive consequences uh, on the youth in Kentucky. Unfortunately, I think what often happens is that we, we allow politics to start clouding uh, what our ultimate goals are. And we can find ourselves in these debates, for example, around religious liberty versus anti-discrimination measures. And, I, and I, I think if we summon our better angels, uh, I think 
all of us can agree that uh, people of faith uh, are about creating a world where all are valued and seen uh, as dignified. And, and then what, how will that translate into our policies around the care of youth? And often, as I said, specifically the care of youth who identify as LGBTQ, how do we make sure uh, that we have culturally competent care uh, and, they're, and they're not facing institutions that can continue with either direct or implicit bias uh, in the provision of care with those youth. So you completely uh, changed my direction. Uh, I had a title idea for this episode, and I think summon our better angels is much better than what I had in mind. And that is a very illustrative um, phrase. And I, I think it makes sense in this context. Um, one thing that was very interesting of timing today was after at the about an hour after our commission meeting concluded today, um, the Supreme Court somewhat uh, weighed in on this and their decision in Fulton v. the city of Philadelphia. And I was just wondering if you think, and again, you said at the preface of this, um, not coming as from the position of, as an attorney, um, but that just, do you think that that complicates, further complicates this? I mean, I have my own personal thoughts on this and I'm happy to share, but I was just curious on your thoughts of today's news with the Supreme Court's ruling. Yeah, uh, that's obviously uh, important news. And uh, it was somewhat serendipitous that it happened on the same day as the uh, commission meeting for the Kentucky Human Rights Commission, as we were discussing uh, how the commission may play a role in not only addressing adults, uh, and we spend so much of our time talking about cases of discrimination and uh, prejudice and the effects of prejudice on the adult community, I think we really have an invitation to also expand our worldview uh, as a Kentucky Human Rights Commission and really zoom in on uh, how are we also making sure uh, that those who are children, uh, minors, adolescents, uh, are also under the mantle of protection of this Human Rights Commission and the important work it has been doing for decades. Uh, specific uh, to the case in Philadelphia, I guess I just would echo back to uh, my earlier comments. Uh, can we afford as a society uh, to say uh, your help is not needed in addressing right. The, the number of children who are experiencing uh, a phenomenal number of adverse childhood experiences, including uh, the fact that we have come through a once-in-a-lifetime global pandemic that has only exacerbated uh, the problems of abuse, neglect, addiction, uh, mental health. Uh, do I, am I in a position as the CEO of a children's home to say to a same-sex couple, I don't need your help in volunteering. I don't need your help in uh, providing a foster care environment. I, I don't need your help. I, I, I'm not sure that that really, if, if our goal is a safe environment for 
our most precious commodity, our most precious resource, namely the children in our communities. I'm not sure I'm in a position to say that exactly. Yeah, and I, I think one thing that I thought was interesting um, is just following the news after that announcement or that ruling um, and people couching it as a uh, an overall uh, complete victory for so you know what's labeled as religious freedom in with the ruling of this and then when you read it um there's no outright it still doesn't say outright that that's allowed it's just that particular the particular law or practice in philadelphia um didn't meet the neutrality standard that it needed to be upheld and so I, I don't see it as a giant loss in this issue that's local. Um, I think it, it just raises, adds more to the conversation. But like you said, we should summon our better angels and realize that there are things that we, there are people who are going to need homes and there are people who have, will have loving families who want to take them in. And Right, absolutely. Absolutely. I, and I'll say this, right? So once again, I am not on a crusade against uh, organized religion or uh, an assault on uh, communities of faith. I have found that in my own personal life to be extremely foundational, meaningful, and guiding. And I am every day surrounded by uh, donors and by employees who are also people of faith. But I, I think that people of faith also know that we have to be, we have to use our brains, we have to use our noggins, we have to make sure that we're asking ourselves tough questions because at times uh, prejudice and discrimination can be veiled in religious language and religious imagery. Uh, and that's a dangerous thing. <laughs> we have to ask ourselves some tough questions. Is this really, uh, this uh, particular dynamic, is it really about religious freedom or is it really some type of discrimination or prejudice uh, emerging from culture and uh, somehow uh, that, that culture has become baptized uh, and taken over into uh, faith communities? I will say this uh, in terms of just a, a real life observation. We have over 100 employees at Children's Home of Northern Kentucky. And I, I jokingly say we have all kinds of people taking care of all kinds of kids. And uh, if you look at the team at Children's Home of Northern Kentucky, you will see people of color. You will see people of various faith backgrounds, including uh, Jewish, Muslim, uh, Christian. Uh, you will see employees who are openly gay, who are open, uh, openly uh, transgender, lesbian, uh, queer, questioning. Uh, and and we need every one of those people on our team. If we are really going to be a community of healing, I cannot afford as a CEO to turn away any able-bodied, capable, committed, uh, skilled worker who wants to be a part of this crusade of uh, saving children from hopelessness and despair and danger. Uh, and because precisely because we have that kind of community of employees, we can extend a type of excellence and care to the families and children who come in all of those flavors and stripes 
coming to our front doors. We look like them, right? Uh, and there's a, a type of relationality, a relationship that people can see in the diversity of our staff. So I don't see that as a deficit. If that's true with the Children's Home staff at Children's Home of Northern Kentucky, it's certainly, I think, community, even the religious denominations who are struggling around the topic of religious freedom and the discussion of uh, anti-discrimination uh, issues with uh, the LGBTQ community. I, I know as a Catholic priest, uh, every Sunday in the pews in my parish, there were members of the LGBTQ community. Uh, there, 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 it has to be this awareness that uh, we live in a diverse world. And uh, I think when we have these tough conversations, these probing conversations, and we really ask, what are the foundational goals that we're trying to achieve here? Uh, we might come out uh, on the side of uh, inclusion, equity, uh, equal access. Uh, I think that's the kind of world that so many people, including people of faith, want to live in. Well, that is, I think that's a good place to end. Um, I think that was really, uh, this has been really informative. Um, especially on, you know, what Children's Home in Northern Kentucky does, but also where we are um, in Kentucky right now as far as the issue and some of the, the challenges that are coming up right now. And hopefully we do find a place where we can all summon our better angels and take care of the most vulnerable. So thank you, Commissioner, for joining and I, I really appreciate all that you're doing. Terrence, I appreciate everything you're doing as executive director of the Kentucky Human Rights Commission. I don't know if there's ever been a more important uh, time for us to have uh, a commission that is so actively engaged uh, around the topics of human rights. Um, they uh, Every age has its struggles. I believe this particular moment that we find ourselves in the, the divided world that has gripped so many of us, uh, here we have a commission that I think can play a truly medicinal role in uh, mending uh, that, uh, that chasm that we can often find in the Commonwealth and throughout the nation. <laughs> Thank you. I might, uh, don't be too nice. I might have to have you on every week. <laughs> <laughs> The music you hear throughout this recording was produced by Esquire Music alongside Spice Productions.